All right, and welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in this community, and the people of our community matter to me. And so I started this podcast with several intentions in mind, and I'm going to read them, and I read them at the beginning of every podcast. So number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying gaslighting or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy or support as needed, draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. So I want to welcome today's guest. Um, her name is Laura Elizabeth Roberts. Um, she took her first Kundalini yoga class when she was 15 in 1972. She found it filled a hole that she had been seeking to fill. Um, she graduated from high school with her turban on in 1975 and she re received her name Sadhukar Khalsa in 1975 at summer solstice. She was engaged three days before her 18th birthday, and she was married in June 1976 at summer, summer solstice in the hills of Española. She has two incredibly wonderful children with her husband, uh, with her uh, former husband, Guru Sevik Singh, uh, later changed to Seva, and they are now 40 and 37. She considers them her best friend son and best friend daughter. Her son's name was Guru Mayer Singh, and he named himself Jazz when he was eight. 
He goes by Jazz Khalsa now. Her daughter was born Shubhad Avtarkar and named herself Arissa when she was five. She goes by Shabby to all of her family and uses Arissa Khalsa out in the world. Sadhu left 3HO in 1988 when she heard that still voice inside of herself to stop wearing a turban until she knew that her spirituality was inside of herself and not what she wore. She went by Sadhu for many years and then switched to Elizabeth, which was her middle name, since she felt that Laura was another person. She uses Sadhu as her last name, which is, very, which is her very own and not her father's or her husband's. Elizabeth divorced Gudasevic in 1991 and found the love of her life, Jim, introduced by her ex. He loves Guru Bani Kirtan and doesn't think that Elizabeth plays her harmonium and sings enough for him. She still wears a kata, has, has an echo car tattoo, and chants puris and shabads. Jim and Elizabeth will celebrate 30 years of being together this coming March. Wow, thank you so much. Elizabeth, I want to just welcome you to our Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Although I'm, I was thinking, I don't know how uncomfortable it's really going to be because I think we're going to be laughing a lot. <laughs> Aaron, I've had 32 years to process. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and that leads me to ask, like, what what makes you feel it's important to share your story here? Um, I guess you know, I I wasn't thinking of it as hugely important until I started kind of pondering it today, like what is it that I have to share? Because I, frankly, I was kind of blessed with not getting really any attention from he who must not be named. Um, and so I didn't have the abuse that many people did have. But I think what I really, what the important for, importance for me, at least that I was thinking about is that I got so much out of that path and uh, so I try to look at any opportunity in my life. Usually it's the hard ones that you learn so much from. And so that definitely filled a hole in me and led me to so much more. And I'm 63 now and I can't tell you how grateful I am at my life and everything, all my experiences. And, you know, I had crazy ass shit happened in the Eugene and Salem ashrams. I have stories, you know. <laughs> right. Speaking of crazy ass shit, um, take us back to being a 15 year old, 1972, okay. and taking your first yoga class, and and really let allow the listeners to. Um, I find this to be an important topic because if you heard an earlier podcast episode, there was a young lady who started at 16, but this was in the 2000s, and so like this is currently happening today, and and yeah. you know the wisdom of our own experiences hopefully can support other people to not lose themselves right in in paths might have wisdom but absolutely um, yeah but yeah have discernment simultaneously so take it back okay okay tell us that was, a, that was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> so i was basically i'm gonna start okay go ahead right so um i was raised in a pretty crazy dysfunctional family my parents apparently smoked a joint on their way to their wedding and they were growing pot and smoking pot and dropped, I guess my dad at some point was dropping acid every weekend. And so they were having a lot of partying. And so I was born in the late fifties. So this was, I was born pretty much exactly nine months after they were 
we were married. So, so anyway, I grew up super dysfunctional, um, craziness and whatever, and, and with no religion or any kind of spiritual base. So, so I didn't think about this at the time, but I just kept thinking, I'm, there's something missing. There's something missing. That, so that'd be like, well, maybe I'll find it in junior high. You know, so I get to junior high. No, oh, that's not it. Well, okay, maybe I'll find it in high school. No, that's not it. I, I remember even uh, before I took my first yoga class, I went to the Catholic church thinking, well, maybe, maybe that's it. And I'm still kind of convinced that if it had been in Latin, I might have become a Catholic. <laughs> But because no. of the sound, because of the sound yeah, current of, yeah, of Latin. Yeah. And so, no, it was in English. So, so anyway, my, in the meantime, my uncle, Gurumukh Singh, had become, a, started doing yoga and he was sharing with us. And then I remember really well when he got his name, I was probably about 14 or so. And I remember sitting in my room, like practicing Gurumukh, Gurumukh, you know, like wanting to be able to say his name. And I never thought it was weird. So one day he invited my mom and my grandma and I to all go to a yoga class to experience, you know. Well, ironically and fun, you know, kind of funny, he got sick. And so we decided to go anyway. And uh, so we get to this class and, you know, we're doing yoga and I, I'm, you know, I'm young. I'm sitting full lotus and super flexible and blah, blah. And I could still hear my granny chanting, you know, she loved to sing and and so then we uh, did the whole class and it was actually our near Bo Singh. So he was teaching in Eugene at this time. And so it was his class. Um, and then anyway, so during the layout, I remember I just completely left my body. And I still remember like, I was like flying around the room, looking down at everybody. And it was just this very trippy experience. I'd never had that experience before. But what it did for me was kind of the big click. Mm. Oh, this is something. This is it. This is what I'm looking for. And uh, so anyway, I started going over, you know, I'm in high school. So I, and I lived at this point, I just lived with my mother and my parents were divorced and my dad and my brother lived in California. So I didn't see them that much. And my mom was pretty, she's pretty, I mean, at this point, she's almost, it feels like she's almost mentally ill with her politics and all that. But Mm. Uh, so we don't talk about that, but she was dating a lot and it was very weird and she had been drinking a lot. And at some point she became a recovering alcoholic, you know, that kind of thing. But here I'm this young teen, you know, and mm. I know stability or whatever. So anyway, I used to go visit the ashram and go over and visit. And so it got to be, I was uh, a senior in high school. And I remember uh, going over, Gramuk had asked to come over for dinner, and I went over. My mom didn't go that time. And I remember sitting there talking to Sakharov saying, and just, I don't know, telling them stuff about my life or whatever. He's asking me questions. And so he says to me, this was a Thursday night, he says, why'd you move in? And I'm like, okay. And I moved in on Sunday. <laughs> Welcome to the ashram. <laughs> That's right. So the fun, the funny thing, and I should have like known, but so I move in on Sunday. I think I had two boxes of stuff and Sakharov Carr in her inimitable way, because she was so good at that, said that was too much. <laughs> so I had to take one box back, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and I'm all like, hey, let's go full tilt, right? And so I put my turban on and on Monday morning, go to high school with a turban on, right? 
And you kind of find out right away who your real friends are when you were in Turban in high school. And that was 1975. So, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I get the, you know, some, obviously there were some people who were still my friends and still talk to me, but many people, they wouldn't look at me or they'd call me names or just whatever, all that crap, right? So, so at some point there was a young guy who was a friend of mine who he same age as me and he also had started wearing a turban to high school. So I wasn't alone. Um, and then at some point, I don't know who decided this. I don't know if it was him. I don't think so. But somehow somebody in the ashram decided we should go to the prom together. <laughs> and, and that wasn't my thing really at all. And I don't think it was a Jeets thing either, but, but whatever. So so he goes and he rents a white tuxedo and, and somebody says to me, oh, you need to get him a little boutonniere and he got me a little corsage and uh, Sava Carr, who lives in LA now, um, was living there at the time and she found, she got, gets out her old wedding, her wedding dress, you know, that she'd worn and, you know, and so that was my, my prom gown. And, <laughs> and so it was pretty cute because uh, the whole ashram, I mean, we were kind of like, okay, but the whole ashram was like, oh, everyone was so into it. You know? And so Sacramento seeing loaned us his car and a Jeep couldn't drive. So, so I'm driving right in the BMW, right? And so I could still see everybody standing at the ashram door like, oh. <laughs> And you're wearing full bana. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm wearing a gown, you know, white. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, full on white. And so, so it was pretty cute. We went, we went out to dinner and then we went and saw my mom and they took pictures and then we went and I have pictures somewhere, right? And then we went and saw his parents and they took pictures and and we show up at the prom and people are just like, oh, like what is that about? Oh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. So anyway, that and then we uh, graduated from high school and I know that the ashram people really wanted us to be, because you always had a buddy when you walked, you know, down the, the whatever the aisle or whatever it is for, for graduation, or at least that's what we did. They wanted Ajit and I to go together, but I wanted to go with my, basically my best friend, but I did not wear a cap, cap and gown. I wore a gown and a turban. All right. <laughs> graduation. Proudly sporting your turban when you're graduating. Right. This that's is the proud right. yoga student convert. Right, right. Yeah. So I went to my first uh, solstice and I had even made uh, some, I had a couple of kurtas and had made a couple of pairs of chidas because, you know, as you, usually as you ease into it, you it takes a while to get the clothes seamed together, right? Well, I still remember walking up the hill or whatever. This was in Pecos. I think it was uh, in the mountains where they had the old solstice and where was the first, where was this first solstice you went? I think it was uh, Pecos, New Mexico. So somewhere way up, way, way up, you know, it wasn't at the, at where it is now. Um, but um, so I remember though, walking to go to Tantric and somebody grabs me, I don't remember who it was and says, oh, here, will you do Tantric with this, some guest? And they're like, how long have you been? And I'm like, I just, I don't know if I'd even done Tantric yet, you know. But because I had Bana on, I, I yes. looked pretty good, you know. You were like looking the full part. So like you looked very like. Oh, yeah. Experienced, you know, I you could, could be. Pass. I could pass. 
So anyway, that was pretty, that was pretty interesting. And I did, I, so I still remember going up uh, and one of the women in the ashram with me, we went up and we, um, I can't remember how we, how you did it exactly. You somehow, uh, Yogi G was coming and you, you asked, he wants to know that your date of birth and he gives you your name, right? So, so I got Sadhu Kar and the woman I was with got Rajveer Kar. And so later everybody in the ashram's like, which, what's your name? What's your name? And and I'm like, Sadhu Kar, and they'd be like, oh. And then Rajveer Kar, oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I want to go back to where you said the naming. So you're saying you just kind of stood there, and then Yogi Bhajan would walk along, and then he would just like name people as he walked. I no, I think that we had to have, it's, oh, it's been, it's funny how the things you remember are really crystal clear and then some things kind of fade. So what I remember is we were outside somewhere. I think we maybe had to ask ahead of time. And then it was like, here, if you're in this one spot, then this will be an opportunity to get a name. I see. I okay. think that's pretty much about as close as I can remember. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so you get named Sadukar. Yes, ma'am. And I was Sadhu Car Roberts for a while until everybody took Kulsa, right? So anyway, we, um, at that point, uh, we all, we had Golden Temple, although it was called Omrit Bakery back in early in the day. And uh, so I remember before I moved to the ashram, I worked there every Saturday and, uh, you know, just for free, right? You're so, saying in Eugene now, like this, this is still, back. still in Eugene, still in Eugene. Yeah. So then, um, but we so I started then after I graduated from high school and we came back from Solstice. So I was working there full time, you know, seven, six days a week and probably 10 to 12 hour days. I mean, they were pretty long days. And I was basically doing a lot of packaging. At that point, they made bread. We made bread, gingerbread brownies and onion rolls. I mean, those onion rolls, I still miss those. They were so good. But uh, so we had to package them up and it was it was pretty simplistic you know kind of archaic technology but what would happen is i usually had there were usually three of us doing the packaging and at some point they would disappear and one of them would be like oh i'm sick i'm gonna go home and the other one would be like where is he and i would it turns out he would have gone into the bakery somewhere and hidden behind these big uh bags of flour and so we could take a nap and so <laughs> And so I loved when having to do all this, but because of who I am, uh, overachiever that I am, I would get it all done on my own. So, so at some point, and I was such an innocent, right? At some point, they made me the packaging manager. And this it is that Omrit Bakery, you're saying? It's Omrit Bakery, which then became Golden Temple Bakery. So then it became the Golden Temple Bakery in Eugene. Okay, yeah. just clarifying. So we're following. Oh, that's, okay. that's good. Yeah. Okay. But uh, what I didn't realize probably until years later is that because I was like, oh, I'm the packaging manager. Well, it's and the person you were saying sleeping that this was like your boss or somebody that was working oh, along with you. Somebody who was working with me. Got um, it. Okay. So there's yeah. like a three of you. You're all working yeah. on packaging, but then he yeah. would actually go out and sleep. He had probably been there a lot longer than you. Yeah. Yeah. He knew he knew how to work the system, or he didn't give a shit or whatever. I don't know. I was all like, "Oh, I have to be the good little girl, and so I must finish and do all this." You know. You were so, the were you the newest devotee? 
um, uh, well, maybe there were, the other young woman who worked with us was like a prima donna. So it was challenging. She would just, I'm going home and like, what are you going to do? <laughs> tackle the woman, right? So anyway, I had an overly developed sense of responsibility and- I'm very and, dedicated. So you're staying there uh, to finish, working yeah, long hours, yeah. okay? And so at that point, I was, because it was, I was still 17, I was still getting child support from my dad, was very sweet, and he still still sent it to me, which I actually just gave to the ashram. I don't know if somebody asked me or if I just volunteered, I really can't remember. But we, but for all that work, we did get $10 a month. So we were getting paid the big bucks. Right? Hold on. So you're 17, this is 1975. Five, you're getting paid ten dollars a month. You're working ten to twelve hour days. You're building this early Amrit Bakery that eventually becomes the Golden Temple Bakery Golden of Eugene. Temple. Yes. Okay, which eventually becomes a, a major. Oh yeah. Part oh, of the brand of Three HO and and to see. So I've I've ironically got a, a couple of good stories about later years because I left Three HO in 1988, but I went back and worked for. Yogi Tea Golden Temple in 2006. Okay, but don't jump there. Keep us track. We want to hear all that, but okay. okay, good. Just stay tuned. You want to stay tuned because <laughs> good shit coming up. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so here we are living in the ashram, right? I mean, we're working our brains out, but but we're all young, right? And I still remember the soccer balls going out of town and we had a huge water fight. Like it was just kind of fun you know we just um had good times and and you know you get a prasad and you're singing and chanting and just doing it all together and it, you know there were some really good times it felt good because it was very family feeling also mm -hmm. yeah. so anyway at some point sakramal singh decides oh i've got all these young people i better marry everybody off so he just starts okay you're engaged and you're engaged and you're engaged and and so one day um and so I, I have to admit, I did have a little bit of a crush on this one guy. So Sakharov Singh calls us into our room and he says, okay, you two are engaged. And I'm, and I hear, this was like three days before my 18th birthday. So I'm like, okay, like clueless, right? Clearly clueless. And he was like, no, thank you. <laughs> this was good as saving <laughs> And so and so anyway, but he, he then went along with it. And Sagar Singh was like, well, you're engaged for three years, you know, because I was pretty young. Oh, so Guru Sevak Singh was five years older than me. So anyway, it was like kind of a hell year. I just uh, were working hard. I somehow, I ended up getting some kind of strange rash. Like, I'm sure it was nerves, right? Just all over my face. So here I'm you know, you want to kind of look okay for your intended. And I just, it was just really hard. So at some point I, I must've seen, uh, he who must not be named somewhere. And he, and uh, with the skin thing, and I'm just going to say what you're saying. People might not get your humor. So I want to, <laughs> I want to make sure not people everybody. are following. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> so anyway, at some point I saw him and, and it's like, hey, what can I do about the skin problem? So he put me on a beet diet. Okay. 40 days of beets, which 
I did pretty darn well for about two weeks. <laughs> and then, at, so at this point, I had stopped working in the actual bakery. They had put me in the little, uh, they had a little bakery retail store in downtown Eugene. So I would work there. And so I decided at some point, I mean, because this is hard, beets, only beets, right? Like, uh, only, you got nothing else, just only eat beets. So at some Over. point, I just was like, okay, today I can eat, this is how I did just about it. Today I can eat beets and granola chunks out of the bin. Or today I can eat beets and whatever. Well, one day, so we had, we, so I was saying we made these gingerbread. It was so good. Um, so they were about this fat and square, you know? Um, so one day I ate eight of those gingerbread. <laughs> and beets and they came to pick me up um in the van because that's how we did it and all i could do was giggle i was like completely stoned on gingerbread <laughs> oh you pure one you got stoned on gingerbread did you <laughs> so it wasn't until so that was sometime in that year so we had um, gotten engaged in august which was right before my birthday and so sometime in that next year then it was starting to get um in the springtime in Oregon, you're all like, the sun comes out, and you're like, oh, I must be in the sun, you know? So I think it was, I had a day off and the sun had come out. So I got my sheepskin, put it in the backyard and got a blanket. And of course, you know, we're also living on not a ton of sleep. Uh, I completely fell asleep for several hours and just burnt the shit out of my face. And the next, I remember the next kind of, I was kind of red and it was tight, you know, but then the next morning they, I woke, we were waking up for a sodna getting ready. And uh, my, we had these room with these two bunk beds. So we, there were four women, you know, in this one room and the woman who slept below me, she sees my face and I can still hear her face, her voice saying, Oh, sadu, <laughs> because it was seeping. It was so bad. I had really burnt my face bad. But on the other hand, that cleared up that skin problem. I was going to say, oh, this is on top of your rash. So that means just kind of cleared that out for you, did it? Yeah. So anyway, um, right about, right a little bit after that time, we always had Yogi Bajam always come to Tantric every May in Eugene. There would be a white Tantric yoga. <clears throat> so uh, Guru Savik and I decided, well, we can go, we'll just get his blessing for our engagement, right? So we go, so at some point, you know, you make an opportunity to go up and we're like, oh, sir, you know, can we, will you bless our engagement? And he looks at us and he says, oh, June is a nice month to get married. And we're kind of like, well, no, we're supposed to be engaged for three years. And then Sagarbal Carr started arguing with him. No, no, sir, she's only 18. And and they're supposed to be engaged for three years, blah, 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 blah. Well, his, her daughter, Serb Shaktikar, and I are the exact same age. And Serb Shaktikar happened to be sitting there. I can't remember if she lived there at the time or what, what, was, what was going on. But you could see his brain going and I could see what was going on. And he turns around, he looks at Serb Shakti and he turns to Sarkarbal Kar and he says, don't worry, we will find a nice husband for your daughter. Because of course she was freaked out that oh my god if here me Sadhu eighteen is going to get married at this age that means her daughter might have to get married at age eighteen so so I think that was I don't think she cared 
I don't think she even cared that much if I got married. It was more about Serb Shakti, you know, like whatever. So in, in, in all this, give us a little perspective about like what the ashram is like. So, so okay. Dr. Paul singing car run the ashram yes. what about your both singing car like not everybody listening really has the scope of like oh, what sure. the ashram was like and where you know and yeah. what does it mean yeah. to build these companies so can you kind of like frame it for sure. us a bit? sure sure so in this is in eugene there was this one house that was kind of like the main uh, ashram house and that's where the sucker balls lived and then in on that street which actually still exists in eugene now a lot of what happened is people started buying houses at some point. But at first, of course, we all lived in these houses together because, you know, we didn't have any money and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of before people started getting married and having kids and that kind of thing. So uh, the, the business there, I'm pretty sure was started Amrit Bakery by Mirbo Singh, who ended up starting Kettle Foods, you know, that whole thing. So he started Kettle Chips. Kettle chips, exactly. Got so it. he ended up um, moving to Salem and he and Nirbokar started the Salem ashram. They had started, and actually when I moved into Eugene ashram, the near bears were still there. And about a month after I moved in, they jumped in their van and drove up the Alcan freeway and started the Anchorage ashram. I don't, I don't think they still live there, but you know, anyway, it was just some interesting historical stuff. Yeah. And I recognize not everybody knows who all these people are. No, but uh, it's good to just say it because those that do know, and that's all that yes, matters. Yes, so exactly. keep going. So, so uh, both uh, the Savas, now Save a Car is still lives in LA and she's still Save a Car. Her, her husband, at some point they got divorced and, uh, but they were still living in the Eugene Ashram at that point. And, and so there were probably maybe 25 or so <clears throat> people, something like that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So anyway, not everybody worked at the bakery. We had a retail store and then like Save a Car was somebody who did graphic design. In fact, she was the one who designed the Golden Temple logo, which I think they used right up until the whole thing kind of dismantled. Um, and uh, then I guess at some point here, let me think. So, okay. Yep. So Yogi Bhajan is saying get married in June. That's a nice month. So that was the next month. And uh, we went to summer solstice and got married there. And uh, so you, was, did, you listened to that and just went. Yeah, we time. went with that. And, uh, and it was it was kind of neat in a way because uh, I mean, I had no clue about being married, but uh, my dad and his and my stepmom came to the wedding. So they they drove all the way up to, you know, this was Pecos. This was before Guru Ram Das Puri, which was way the hell up at least at the time, that's what I remember. And so they came to our wedding and it was very sweet. And we were married with four other couples who, of course, I don't remember who any of those people were. But it was a group wedding with four other couples getting married simultaneously. Yes. Back yes. in your guys' day, that was way more common, I think. And 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 it's interesting yes. for listeners to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Because I because I'm thinking nowadays I see that Sikh weddings, they're having Bhangra and stuff. And I'm thinking, damn, I miss <laughs> I want to have Bhangra. <laughs> right so anyway we so we got married and i guess as kind of our reward we got to drive several things car the beamer again back to eugene that was our honeymoon but we got they gave us three days and of course that's how long it takes to drive right so 
Oh no, the honeymoon was the was the drive home from yeah, New we, Mexico, yeah. and that was the break. Yeah, enjoy yeah. the drive. Drive yourself. Enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, right. yeah. It was a way he could get his car home, right? So anyway, I can't remember why, but it was decided that uh, we would move to Salem. So we moved to Salem right after that, and um, there was a Golden Temple restaurant, and so I went to work there. And there was a Golden Temple wholesale business, which is, again, a business that Nirbo Singh started. He's quite savvy. And so my husband at the time, Guru Savik Singh, went to work at that business. And he, I think he mostly, he worked in the warehouse and he drove delivery truck, you know. So uh, it was it was interesting um, that the restaurant was interesting because it was kind of like the Nirbos kind of treated it like it was their own personal kitchen in a way. So what would happen is the people who worked in the restaurant, there were about three or four of us, we'd go in real early, we'd cook food, then you wait on all the customers, then you totally clean everything up. And then about five o'clock, everybody from the ashram would show up and we had to just fix everybody whatever they wanted. You know, so it wasn't like, okay, we made this casserole, here's for everybody. It was always very, it was like, even at the time, I'm like, somehow this seems a little unbalanced right? I don't understand. You would serve everybody what they want. I miss that. Well, okay. In other words, I heard you wake up early, you make all the food, then you serve the customers. So then you're tending the restaurant as workers. So you're cooking early, you're serving as workers. Then what happened? Okay. Then what happened? Okay. This is how I would see it. If the whole ashram is going to come to the restaurant and eat food, the thing that would make sense to me is here, we made this big dish of salad. We made this big casserole. Here's the dinner for the night. But no, it was it was allowed that everybody could just order whatever they wanted off the menu. So we had to make all these specialized things after we'd been working all day and clean and blah, blah, blah. Now we're waiting on the whole ashram. On right? all the ashram people. Now you're serving them. So you're still yeah. in the capacity of yeah. working at the restaurant. And this yeah. is you and how many people? Probably two or three of us. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so it's like hiring the ashram workers, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we, and I don't remember if how we got paid or if we just got room and board. I, I'm seriously, I've blocked all that out. I don't even remember, but it's all you're living at the ashram and kind of like working as like a worker's compensation. Yeah. And it's a save a mixed in. It's more just kind of like the spirit of living there. I think probably so. I probably so. And we all lived, we lived in, it was kind of neat for a while. We lived in this big old house um, and just, you know, my husband and I had a room and some, another couple had their own room. And and so it was kind of cozy. And, and for a while there, um, everybody was made to get up for sadhana. So we'd get up at whatever, 4.30, do sadhana all together. And we would wait until everybody arrived before we started. So no pressure there, right? But whatever, you know, it's, that was and all. What year is this? So this is probably a 70, I got married in 76. So it'd be like 76, 77, 78. And the Salem know? ashram and they were running it and then running these yeah. businesses. Okay. Yes. Yes. So anyway, um, the interesting thing about Salem is that at some point uh, they sold that house and we moved over there was another house they bought that was much smaller and the Nirvos kind of took it mostly for their house. And a few of us lived there in the house with them. Mm. Fine. And we had a downstairs room that had been a garage and had been converted. And that was our sodna room. So we do our yoga and all that stuff there. 
But at some point, people, everybody left. Pretty much there was nobody left in Salem after several years. And and I I know what it is. It was it was challenging. Um, Nirbo Carr was a very challenging personality. She was pretty bossy. She she would make edicts about stuff. I mean, she had four kids, and there were many times that my husband and I were told that oh, you're taking care of the kids for a week, you know, like not even asking, um, stuff like that. I remember even at some point here here I'm pretty young. I'm like, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I remember I was really into ballet. I had always taken ballet. So I was taking ballet like three days a week. I was going to sauna every single day. I, I think I was even doing all my bonnies. I mean, I was really doing well. And Nirbo Carr told me that I had to give up ballet or I had to move out of the ashram. And I was so freaked out by that, that I, I just kind of believed that that was what would happen. And so I quit ballet and it kind of, it was really too bad because I felt so good about myself and, and it was a really lovely time, you know. So anyway, um, at some point, uh, Nirbo Carr, she went to India quite often and she went off to India and at that, and she was gone for a long time and pretty much, I don't think anybody else lived there, but, but my husband, Dusevic and I, and of course Nirbo Singh and her, so Nirbo's kids, I think were all, may have all been in India at that point, or maybe the younger ones were, I don't know where, I can't remember. Well, Is that funny how you don't remember? Well, they, they couldn't have had all four then, right? I mean, they had, she had two earlier. Her, I know her children. I, I know, I don't know them so well, but I know their children quite well. Um, right, right. So the age differences, like I know her first two children were like, were the first kids to go to school in India. So, yeah. So, some put in Singh and some put in Car. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the younger two came a little bit later. They did. Uh, but they, they did. also both went to school in India. Yeah. I, they hadn't gone to school. I don't think they'd gone to school yet because because the uh, program hadn't started yet, but you're saying that Nirvosi and Carr were connected, say, to Yogi Bhajan as, like, say, leaders of an ashram. Is it that, like, they were leaders of an ashram, and then, like, the UG Oregon was Sakir Paul Sankar, they were leaders of that ashram, and so, like, these leaders that were, like, husband-wife teams, let's say, were, like, in direct communication with Yogi Bhajan probably more than, say, you and Guru Sevi. Oh, you, yeah. you would communicate oh, yeah. to your ashram head. And then yes. they would communicate. Yes. Is it something like that? Yes, yes. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. And also they they would all be traveling more often to go to events where we just, we didn't have the money. It wasn't part of our kind of existence necessarily. If we were lucky if we got to go to an extra tantric or or maybe summer solstice. We pretty much always go to summer solstice. So so there was like definitely extra events like say Khalsa council meetings or India or like yeah. special yeah. gatherings yeah. that would be like a Yogi Bhajan lecture in another yes. state that if yeah. you were of resource, then you would maybe that couple would go and they would kind of be in that group. But then the rest yes. would kind of like hold down the fort, hold down like yes. the businesses, keep things running, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I, I'm trying to frame this so we understand that your relationship to the head of the ashram is somewhat like somebody else's relationship directly to Yogi Bhajan in some way in, in terms yeah. of like leadership yeah. and hierarchy and understanding right. Right. So that we understand right. the, the things yeah. that happen. Yeah. yeah, there was there was a lot of power structure. I mean, some of the things I remember are when I first moved to, to back to, I mean, when I first moved to Salem and I started working at the restaurant, 
Sakharbal Kar told everybody in the Salem ashram that they need to watch me and what I ate because I was hypoglycemic, which was a lie. Uh, my husband, Guru Sevak, and I had gone, before we got married, we went, it was kind of in then to find out if you're hypoglycemic. I, don't, I can't remember. But anyway, we go, we get the test, and he's hypoglycemic, but I'm not. But here she's the head. I mean, she was a pretty big muckety-muck, you know, in the, in the organization. And Say that again. What do you mean by she was a oh. big muckety muck. Oh, like, yeah. Break down your lingo for us. That's okay. called old timers lingo. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Three HO old timers. Oh, okay, Let, okay, okay. Let me qualify. Okay. So she was a big wig. How's that? She was a definitely a uh, up there in the organization. And I remember Nirbo Carr even. So Nirbos were pretty up there too, but definitely the soccer balls, I think they were more like the regional heads. I think maybe that's, so in terms of like Pacific Northwest, maybe. Okay. Um, but I remember Nirbo Carr being afraid of Sakharbo Carr, like intimidated by her, you know, and her telling me that. In terms her of soccer, power dynamics and, and- Power dynamics and just kind of who, you know, and, and Sakharbo Carr always had a definite ideas. So. So anyway, okay, so then this helps us to understand the ballet story. So you're told you to stop doing this and you're a yeah. devoted student and you're a devoted yes. member yes. of the ashram. And, and yes. this is your yes. leader saying this is what you have to do. Exactly. So basically, you it was always this feeling of you have to do what we say or you're out of here. You know, that was definitely the feeling. And and part of my I mean, I think I was probably a people pleaser. I definitely, even though I only kind of embraced it recently, I was definitely an overachiever. I said that to my husband recently, do you think I'm kind of an overachiever? He goes, you think? <laughs> so working hard, trying to please, trying to feel like I'm good enough, you know, because I had that old mantra going on too. And so all that stuff that I'm going to follow all the rules. Sure. So anyway, um, at I think at some point that, okay, so I was saying Nirvakar had gone to India. She would regularly go. She really liked going to India. Um, her older kids at this point were in India. Her younger kids were still, I don't know who was taking care of them. I don't remember, but they were, at least City Kumbalnan was still at home because she was at the birth of, of my daughter. So and we're the same age. So that's around 77. That she okay. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So um, anyway, uh, I, my husband and I decided we wanted to try having a kid. And so um, we had a little joke. Hopefully this doesn't gross people out. But you, you know, people talk about taking your temperature to see where you're at in your ovulation. You're talking about, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I had read is you could check your mucus and if it stretched like an egg white, then you that was when you're most fertile so yeah, i still that's still a common way to okay to okay yeah, yeah. So like it's just a real yeah. natural uh yeah. temperature right, right right so anyway i said to him okay time to make an omelet you know <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> one, one try for let's have sex yeah exactly and of course you know back then uh yogi vegan was telling people they should only have sex once a month <laughs> which is a little ironic if you think about everything, right? 
yeah, I mean, it's actually horrendous, you know, it's horrendous to know that he was actually having so much. No shit, no shit. But yeah, so he's actually teaching have sex once a month to couples. Right. The types of things being perpetuated through the teachings. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, uh, I, it seemed to be extraordinarily fertile. It was one try for me. And uh, we tried to have a son first because I always thought it'd be kind of cool to have an older brother. And I, so I put, after we had sex, I put myself up in shoulder stand because you know, the, the male, they're, they're pretty fast, but they're not very, have much stamina. So if you get them there quick, then I'm sorry, did this come out from a lecture? I don't know if I read it. I don't know if I read it somewhere, <laughs> but anyway, it worked. So anyway, I had, I was lucky. I had uh, both my kids at home and, uh, uh, Nirbo Carr and City Kumble Nan were at my daughter's birth, and that was three years later. And it was actually pretty, pretty cool. I leaned, they had me lean up against Nirbo Carr, and they kept saying to me, touch the head, touch the head. And because they're trying to get me more grounded, because you're kind of like, you know, it's, it's a little, I mean, it's very intense, you know, but wonderful. But I remember thinking, I can't, no, I don't want to get blood on her cherry dust on her white leg, right? Uh. <laughs> anyway, I so I had my son and my husband were also there, and uh, the head popped out, and I can still my daughter's head popped out. I can still hear my son laughing hysterically because it was like, ah, you know. So anyway, it was pretty pretty amazing. I felt very blessed to have them both at home, and it was. It was really sweet. Uh, City Kumal Nan and my son, she's, uh, he was born in, in 1980. So they were actually pretty good buds, you know, when she still lived there. Mm. Uh, so um, your son's anyway. first born, he was born 1980. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he turned 40 uh, last July. Not that I'm old enough, but you know, you know how that goes. So anyway, um, so probably then fast forward to we had uh we decided to buy a little house you know you kind of get a little more householder we had maybe a little bit of money um uh and we bought a house just up the street at that point the nearbos just really didn't want to live with anybody which you know of course and they uh, were just learning to take space i'm sure now do you know the time frame in terms of i know the business stuff started happening has that stuff already happened or are you going to be telling that you know what i'm talking about i'm going to be telling some of that yeah the so this was around um, probably around 1979. We bought a little. Oh no, wait, no, no, no. We we lived in a duplex next door. My son was born in 1980, and about a couple years after that, we bought a little house up the street. And then my daughter was born in 1983. Okay. And so um, at that point, I was a stay-at-home mom, and uh, I hung out with Nirvo Carr. I'd probably see her every single day, and. Uh, which um, had its ups and downs, you know, but I was also kind of intimidated by her and, and she was a bit, she was a bit autocratic, I would say, or you could say a little bit of a bully. Um, so anyway, at some point, I can't even remember what the argument was about, but we were on the phone talking and something made me mad. And I just marched down to her house with my son, who was probably about two, and uh, I said something to her, she said something to me, and we went at it. We had a roll around on the floor, pull each other's hair, fight, physical fight in her living room. 
can't for the life of me i can't remember what the hell it was about but but the good thing about it so Nirvakar is quite tall and i mean i'm five four she's she was probably five at least five ten so she's a bigger woman than me and i actually i was kind of proud of myself i went and confronted her because it really helped um it helped me a lot in terms of kind of taking my power like like i don't have to be intimidated by her i don't have to do everything she says i am a person too blah 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 right and at this point i'm you know we're still all wearing turbans and all that but the kind of funny thing that happened i was trying to remember you know remember all these chain of events and stuff one of the th funny things that would happen is the near falls i don't know i can't remember how they got into it they decided to start taking nutmeg and i don't know if you've ever heard about that but uh nutmeg is supposed to be good for like lowering your blood pressure but what they would do is they would they would make these drinks where they would take two whole balls of nutmeg and grate it and make kind of like a smoothie but you wouldn't start feeling stoned until almost like it would take about eight hours to come on and oh my god <laughs> this was like I guess, you know, because, you know, we weren't taking drugs or drinking or doing anything like that, but we were like all wild high on nutmeg. No, this is a little bit later in the 80s, though, right? This isn't so early, right? Oh, this was in the early 80s, because I remember like early my, 80s. This yeah, is so I, funny. I Because I remember at some point, all of us were like pretty, and I remember my son fell down and like hit his head or something. And I still remember that feeling like, oh, oh, shit. What do I do? Because I wasn't quite with it, right? Like, ah. Anyway, yeah. I don't do well. I don't do well with drugs. <laughs> yeah, it was like the. It was. I remember that came through our ashram, like with a wave of older adults, and and they would like um, put you know take the grate it and then put it in um in like shakes and drinks and like the yogi tea and and uh you know like this is like you know there's whole communities with no caffeine no sugar you know there's no drugs just, you know high on their breath or you know so it's it makes sense you know they like nutmeg exactly hilarious so so anyway um so then at some point um <clears throat> I had started reading uh, books about codependency and you know addiction and just that kind of thing and like kind of trying to understand my family dynamics, right? And uh, there was this one woman I really loved her books named Ann Wilson Shape, and uh, so I saw she was coming. She was coming to Salem to speak, so I'm kind of like, well, I've got to go see her. So at this point, I'm still like an old good girl seek and wear, you know, wear my turban everywhere and all that kind of stuff. But I hear this little voice inside my head say, wear your hair down. And I'm kind of like, no, no, I, no, I can't do that. Wear your hair down. Um, so I'm like, okay. And so I go to this lecture and she happened to be talking about addictions. And I remember sitting there feeling super insecure and even trying to say, wanted to ask a question and feeling kind of shy and I'm not really shy. And then thinking, oh my God, people aren't gonna know I'm spiritual. You know, all this kind of bullshit, right? <laughs> These are the uh, thoughts you're thinking in your head. Yes, yes. And, and then at some point it was like, 
oh my God, I'm addicted to my turban. And so it was, it was actually one of my most powerful life experiences because I realized, oh man, I need to know it's in me that it's not this whatever outside part of me, right? It's in me. So I got real clear, like you can't put your turban back on until you know it's in you. And I pretty much never did put it back on. You didn't um, but, put it back on after that. What year was yeah, that? I mean, I'd go to Gudwara or whatever. Um, that was probably around 87-ish or so. Uh, right in there, 86, 87. So in the meantime, so I'm having this experience. We're talking about it's time for Guru Meher Singh to start to go to school in India. You know, and of course we're getting pressure, some pressure. Uh, and that's, and especially the nearby world. You know, How old is your son at this point? He's only six. He's six years old. You're starting to get pressured from Yogi Bhajan directly, from the Nirbos, from the whole community. Uh, we didn't ever have that much um, with Yogi Bhajan. I mean, okay, you didn't have direct communication. Oh, no, it was more like the trickle down effect, you know. And of course, the Nirbos had sent all their kids to school in India. They all went because um, Karta and then City Kamalman went later too. And uh, so anyway, I don't, I mean, I'm trying to remember, I must have had some pause because he was so little, right? But it was like, that's what you're supposed to do. And oh, I remember, oh, the families are, my husband's family and my family were freaking out, right? Because he was the first grandkid, you know? So uh -huh. anyway, um, we prepare to do that. And so my husband and I'm, my husband at the time, and I'm telling you, I texted him recently and thanked him for doing this. But what happened was he decided he would, he volunteered to take their four kids over to school. And one of them was our son. One of whom was uh, Guru Ratan Singh, who was my son's best friend. And that was Kartar and Satmandar's son. And there were two other kids. I don't know who. And he, from but he was, Yeah. From, some, or just from somewhere close. close by. It may be in, in Oregon. Okay. Or, and, you know, so anyway, he, he decided he wanted to go to hike around the Himalayas. That was like a life goal for him. So he thought, well, I'll take the kids to India and then I can do that. That'll work. So I'm so grateful he did that. And um, so this was back, you know, no cell phones, no internet, really not, nothing like that. And he, um, I get a call. So they're in India. So I don't know much, I don't know much is going on. I'm home with my daughter and working and whatever. And I get a call from Sarkabal Carr and she's like, Gurusavik took Guru Mayor Singh out of the school. And I'm like, what? She goes, you tell him to get him back in the school. You know, like it was this huge, huge uproar. Like I mean, violation had occurred. Oh yeah. Like breaking the rules big time, right? So uh, I'm like, I didn't know anything. So anyway, they, they come home and that, I mean, I get, I get choked up thinking about it now. I'm so grateful. He was there in school for two weeks. So he went to school in India, but he was always supposed to be there for two weeks. And so I he, dro he dropped him off. Did he go on his Himalaya trip and then come back and see he his son? Back, he came back to just check and say hi. And it was what like the place. But it was not the place for him and he pulled him out and uh i am cannot and i texted him recently and said thank you thank you thank you again for doing that you know 
So wow. And again, what year was this again? That would have been probably 1986, 87, maybe. Okay. Right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Gudumir came there for two weeks. His son and, and uh, Guru Sevik picked him right on up. All right, took him That's home. Right. So that was an uproar, Guru. Uh, oh, so yeah. Car's calling you because she's oh, like yeah. the head of the region. Oh, yeah. So obviously, yeah. somebody from Yogi Bhajan, right, in circle calls her. She's the one who calls you. Oh, now yeah. what? Breaking the rules. So, anyway, at that point, basically, uh, I think at some point, I then I trimmed my hair. I mean, I cut like about maybe that much, but it was kind of like the people in the ashram could ignore the fact I wasn't wearing a turban because, because we'd only ever see Eugene people if we went to Gurdwara down there and I'd always wear a turban and go to Gurdwara, right? But in right real life, I was wearing my hair down or a braid or whatever. I just didn't have a turban on. So when I cut my hair, it was like, we can't ignore that anymore. So I remember Sagarbal Singh calling me up, like, what are you doing? And blah, 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 blah. No, and, no, come on. Tell us the blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know if I can remember the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can <laughs> kind of get a gist. Okay. He was basically telling me like, I'm going down the wrong path and I need to get it together. And so what I said to him was, oh, okay. So what you're saying is put my turban back on and get back with the program. And he said, that's right. And I said, no, that's okay. No, thanks. And wow. so, so we were still living in Salem. We were living in a, a separate house at this point. I mean, in our own house. You know, we that you bought? Uh, well, we had sold the one that we bought and we had moved. We were in a rental at this point. And, and if I can clarify, like what yeah. happened when you brought Guru Marising, when, when your husband brought Guru Marising home, was there much of a hoopla? Like what happened that, that and what did, like what happened to, to calm that before even the hair stuff sure, incident? Sure. Um, well, not a lot at that point, because partly because we were living in Salem, we weren't, uh, the Nirbos lived in their own house of kind of across town in Salem. We weren't there, like, like the Portland ashram people or the Eugene ashram people or whatever. It wasn't like they were there with us all the time. And you weren't so, living in the ashram atmosphere anymore. You kind of have exactly, your autonomy a little bit. Exactly right. Exactly right. So so then I uh, cut my hair and then Jazz, I mean, uh, Guru Meher Singh decided he wanted to cut his hair. And so I, I, his dad was actually kind of freaking out at that point. Like he did not want him to cut his hair. So I sat him down, Guru Meher Singh down and I talked to him about it. And I said, okay, sweetie, I'll make an appointment for you, but I'm going to make it for two weeks. And this is what I want you to think about. I want you to think about your dad. I want you to think about when you see the near bows. I want you to think about, you know, how it would feel and having these interactions. And so here he's like maybe seven, right? He's pretty young. And so it was a super interesting piece for me in raising children because it's kind of like, how old are they when they make their own decisions, right? Because this is a big decision, you know, in the Sikh world, you don't cut your hair, right? So anyway, um, he, in the meantime, he decided he really wanted to get this pair of red pants. <laughs> He's been wearing Bona like his whole life, right? <laughs> like before cutting my hair, I need some red pants. We <laughs> <laughs> had gone to get him. I think he wanted to wear pants. And he saw this pair of red pants he wanted so bad. Yeah, anyway, it was very cute. You know? I could relate to that. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and of course, in school, they didn't call him. He went to a Montessori school, which was lovely, fabulous. And then he went to regular public school. And of course, they all called him guru, you know. And he also, he's, he was very pretty as a little boy. I mean, he's, he's a handsome honk now, but, you know, he was real pretty. And, and of course, the long hair, and people always thought he was a girl, right? So there's right. some of that little piecing in there. So anyway, he thought about it. He really thought about it. And, and so I took him and got his hair cut. And uh, his dad accepted it. We, we uh, took a picture of the last time he put his hair up, you know, in a Rishi knot and braided his hair. I still, ha- I actually still have his braids from all that, all that years ago. I mean, wow. I should have donated it, but I don't, I don't know why I keep, I just have it, you know, anyway, you know. I kept my hair for my own too. Did you? When I first cut my hair, yeah. And kept when I, right, when I first, I first got mine cut, up, cut off to about here and I did donate it. And it, it was pretty sweet because there was a lots of love, a young woman, a young girl who had similar color hair to me. So it was really sweet to hear that my hair would go, you know, to help there. So anyway, uh, so at, the, at this point, uh, Goody Saving and I decided, you know what, let's, let's move back to Eugene. Um, I had actually started a restaurant in Salem, a natural food vegetarian restaurant. Um, and I was just completely exhausted by that. Because what would happen is as a Sikh, we had that early restaurant and at some point it closed. But if people would see us who knew us, they'd be all like, oh, open another restaurant because they liked our restaurant. So you, you'd either get that or you'd get the yelling. Do you have to wear that thing on your head? You know, either you know. we love your food or why do you wear that thing on your yeah, head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually told somebody one time they were said something about you have to wear that thing in your head, and I said I have a brain tumor, and they were like, "Oh, so sorry." And I said, "That's okay. You wouldn't know." That's <laughs> I mean, terrible. No, it's horrible. It made me laugh, but it, I mean, not at the time. I had to keep it straight. You know? Anyway, so anyway, we decided too to- much joy at the time. I guess so. But we decided to move back to Eugene and and we bought a house down there that wasn't so far from the ashram, but uh, within walking you know distance, but just kind of on the other side of this park down there. And I still remember Ravi Tejshin coming over to visit. And it was pretty sweet. People did come visit us, but Ravi Tejshin starts giving me a lecture, you know, about not wearing a turban and whatever all that crap. And, and I said to him, there are many lifetimes in this lifetime. This is what you're saying to a Sikh that's lecturing you at your restaurant about why you should be better at being a devout right, right. Sikh and wear a turban. He's kind of like, you know, he's another one. Get with the program. Why'd you stop wearing a turban? Right. You, made a, you made a vow, blah, 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 right? And then I don't know if you know, Yogi Budget used to say that like 20 gazillion times. There are many lifetimes in this lifetime. So so you gave him a Yogi Budget quote. I was like, that sounds a little Yogi Budget like <laughs> It totally shut him up. It totally shut him up. It was pretty funny. That is funny. So you just started delivering the quotes. You would be like, get back on the path. Get your turn back on. Well done. um, At that point, uh, so Gudusevic and I, you know, here we'd had this arranged marriage and blah, blah. Uh, We had actually been separated for a little while in Salem. And then we got back together. And then we moved back down to Eugene and we all lived in this house together and then at some point we talked about it and it was kind of like 
you know what, let's separate again. Um, we, ha we had a house that had a little apartment downstairs. So my daughter and I moved into that downstairs apartment and we, we kept it very friendly. Um, it was kind of like, let's get some real love in our life, right? And um, <clears throat> so three nights a week, they, he and at this point, Jazz had named himself Jazz, would come downstairs and we'd have dinner down there. And then three nights a week, we'd go upstairs and have dinner up there, you know? And also my daughter is chubby, not, not shabby, shabby, shabby. shabby. Yeah, yeah. I didn't so, say that. Shabby. Way, to, totally way to correct fine. that. My apologies, chubby. Totally fine, yeah. So um, anyway, and then um, I just ran, we decided he, he wanted to have a New Year's Eve party one year. And, You're, oh, talking he had cut his hair. You're talking yeah. about Okay. So he had, he had decided to cut his hair and um, because it's kind of hard for men because they could, if they, if they just stopped wearing a turban, then they kind of look like a hippie. Right. So it seemed like it would be like, okay, I'm going to take my turban off and cut my hair kind of all at the same time for women. We can just wear our hair down and we just, you know, whatever. Look like um, with long hair. Uh, my question is, yeah. you're transitioning. So your son cuts his hair. You know, he'd obviously, your husband made a renegade decision. I'm not having my son stay there. And right. so like, is there an atmosphere change in the ashram and the way you connect? Are you going to Gurdwara still? Are you interacting with people in the ashram? Or are you only, mostly just on your own little island here? Just um, like a little, here a little bit of a, you bet, a little bit of a combination. And in fact, I started I remember I was quite addicted to mascara at some point and so I'd wear my hair down I started wearing western clothes I put my mascara on and I would go visit my friends at the ashram because they're my friends right and a lot of them did not know what the fuck to do with me like oh my god who is this person right but they kind of got used to me just being whatever right and and so then it it became it was nice because I I was determined not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Meaning there were certain aspects of the lifestyle you liked and you were starting to make the changes that you felt you needed to, regardless exactly. of what kind of pushback you were getting. Exactly right. And in fact, I, during about this time, I got a phone call from a woman who, was, who I knew from Seattle and I didn't know her real well, but I knew her, you know, she's an ashram. <clears throat> she had left. And she left her husband and stuff. So she calls me up to start talking to me. And I said, you know what? We weren't friends before. I'm not going to join some ex-sleep group and whatever. So no, thank you. Like she, she wanted to draw me into this because I wasn't, I wasn't wanting to be like a negative, like I did this horrible thing. I was forced to do this horrible thing. I mean, obviously we can look at it now and go, well, that was a fucking cult, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, yeah, but um, we all, yeah, and uh, so, so, but at that point, I just was determined, like, I still love, I love Gurbani Kirtan, I mean, I still have my harmonium, my husband, Jim, loves Gurbani Kirtan, um, my ex-husband, Gurdjieff Singh, whenever I'd play in Gurdwara, he would leave the room, I mean, like, whatever, you know, so, so I, I mean, I wanted to maintain the things that spoke to me and that I loved. And, but I still had friends at the ashram, so I would still go visit. And um, and of course, my uncle is, is still a Sikh, although I think he might be in the really old school of denial. <clears throat> I see. So the uncle that you that started 
first that you, when you were 15, you learned about all this from. He's still a, a practicing uh, budgeon follower, oh, so to speak, yeah. and in yeah. the group of people that are really not at all giving credence to um, the yeah. stories that are coming out and kind yeah. of are in that. I haven't, I haven't asked him directly, but I'm very close friends with his wife who they just got a divorce. Um, I mean, she's technically my aunt, but she's not that much older than me. And uh, so she tells me, you know, what's going on. So anyway. I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So that's interesting. So you two are starting to do your own thing, but you're still, you're not living in the ashram anymore for many years, but you're in the environment and slowly, yeah. but you're doing the best you can to keep a bridge. Right. And, right and, you know, yeah. I know you spoke a lot about Nirbo singing a car, like, did you maintain a friendship with Nirbo Car when she, cause I know she left many years, uh, some years around that time too. Right. Right. Well, um, we, we kind of did. I, I think it helped later once, you know, we got Facebook and some of that stuff and I'm still in touch with the, and, and in fact, uh, my husband, so Jim and I ended up, you know, getting married and we've been together almost 30 years and it's wonderful. I cannot tell you how wonderful it is, but, um, we went to Hawaii a few times and we'd go to the big island and uh, Nirbo Singh, I don't know if they, he still has it. He goes by Cameron now. Cameron has a little brew pub there, or he did, who knows now. Great beer company. Yeah, yeah, Kona Brewing Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has a, a place on the big island down in Kealakakua Bay. And so I would call ahead and say, hey, we're going to be coming over. Can you hang out a little bit? And so we went to the, his little brew pub a couple of times and we went down to uh, the bay. It's like, I mean, this is after he sold kettle chips, right? I mean, Which we need to go back to date wise. So I want you to finish this thought and I want sure, you to go back. Sure. So anyway, we saw, we saw him and Susie, his now wife, uh, several times. We'd, we'd actually kind of bump into them on the beach there at uh, Manini I, Beach. I just think it'd be awesome to have him or, or uh, Angel near Bokar uh come and share their story yeah, the story yeah. i can really imagine one yeah, of the things i remember cool. most about nirbo car is going to ladies camp and she always had the best tent you know <laughs> she was among the, the elite women this is my yeah. as a child the elite women that had all the cool things of a tent that you yeah. were staying for five weeks oh yeah bag cots refrigerators zipper i mean i wanted to hang out with the cool totally. kids Totally. She used to rent a locker space in Espanola so she could leave all that stuff there. So smart and not yeah, travel. I remember smart. that. I was like, I yeah. remember being a, a teenager and thinking, man, some of these ladies got this stuff down. <laughs> they know oh. how to do this. <laughs> no, totally. totally. Um, but yeah, on this note, um, yeah. give us some perspective going back to like the ashram days, because there was a time when there were these individual couples, right? And then there were kind of, everyone's living in the homes and then things start to kind of get um, centralized. So wasn't there some sort of a, a letter that gets sent or like when Nirbo started these businesses and then weren't the businesses, didn't Yogi Bhajan ask that these businesses get given to him and, and were I, you around during these that, times? That is my understanding that, that he did and that Cameron was like, no. I think of the Golden Temple Bakery or the restaurant. Okay, so the so originally it was Omrit Bakery, then it became Golden Temple Bakery. I think what happened is Nirvasing just left that there for whoever could run it in Eugene. He moved to Salem, then he started Golden Temple Wholesale Business, which I think then somehow it ended up 
being our business. My my husband, Gudasevic, and I ended up owning that business. I just, it's so foggy how it kind of all happened. Yeah, uh, it's I think interesting for listeners. You take <laughs> listeners taking it in that no other pieces of the puzzle. Welcome to this conversation <laughs> and keep filling in the details. But go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, I know that at some point we we paid him some money for it, Neville Singh. So, but anyway, then he started the kettle chip company, and that which was actually kind of fun to be a little bit uh, a part of some of that because of course he'd bring home here try these chips you know, like, sure, yeah, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing. And at some point he, he kept kind of trying to branch off. Like at some point he was going to do cookies and whatever, but really it was all about the chips. Right. So my understanding is he ended up selling that company for like $53 million or whatever it was, you know, um, selling kettle chips you're saying. Um, but wasn't there a thing where Yogi Bhajan wanted him to give it, give him the business. And he said, I, no, I, I understood that, but I didn't understand it at the time. I don't think I knew enough or I... You weren't in that realm of knowledge base. Exactly. I, I don't know the details, but I know somebody will come forward, hopefully, that can share the story. But I know it's something around, um, you know, because he had given the other business, um, whether it was the Golden Temple, whatever the other business that he had given, and he had said something about you ran that one to, you know, you didn't take care of that. So he wouldn't give him his next business. And I know... Um, yeah. that, that YB was quite mad at him. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure because um, no, that was a good business. And Nero Singh is a brilliant business. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. So he goes on, he ends up selling that business and makes a million dollars and ends yeah. up starting but, gear companies and other businesses. And yeah, one of the both things of them have always been very realized, One of the things I kind of realized about that, I thought about this before, is that um, I think it maybe helps you to be a little bit bold when you know you have money um, because he was he was the one of the heirs to the um, mount bachelor butte mount bachelor the ski resort his dad started that and so you know i don't know if his dad was giving him money then i, I but uh i just know that you know i think it can often make you feel pretty bold and of course it's a perfect example of white privilege too you know it can make you feel pretty bold jumping into something let's try this let's try that when you know oh i'm gonna eat my kids are gonna eat because you know we got this money so it's it just an interesting piece i mean he sure. was a good he was definitely a good businessman I'm not, I'm i also not, think there's just, there's something to be said for like you know you are what you grow up around right and kind of what you see and what you learn yeah, about so absolutely. it's kind of like how is it that like a professional bat a basketball player has children that can become basketball professional basketball oh, players? Sure because you know it's like a grooming and i think that our community it happens the same way like we kind of like get groomed into levels of expectation either high or low based on our our earliest environments right oh totally totally yeah yeah and you're just kind of also if that's what your your parents are talking about blah 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 even if they're not necessarily grooming you you're immersed in that culture just around that like the grooming is the marinade of the environment of what you absorb yeah Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I don't, like I said, I'm not. Tell us about the time when you, um, when, when uh, Yogi Bhajan was, or the secretariat was giving directives about the lands, like to, 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 to suggest that the ashrams be written over. Like I said, I don't, 
I don't know. I don't know when that happened. Um, I mean, I, I was pretty, I had kind of checked out, you know, probably 86, 87 ish. And then, I mean, just then we moved back to Eugene in 1988. And that, to me, that's a real clear delineation of save a, get a save it, cut his hair, mm-hmm. cut their hair, they changed their names. You know, at that point, I was still going by Sadhu, but I, I you know, then a couple of years later, I uh, met my husband, Jim, and, and then decided to go by Elizabeth, that kind of thing. So I, I have to say, I was not privy to so much. I mean, that was one of the things that was very uh, frustrating. You never, I never felt like I was good enough to know stuff because it was always secrets and always, you know, or the people with money got the attention or the people you know, who were the whatever big wigs or whatever the hell it was, you know, and, and of course, you know, looking back on it, I can really see how, oh, yeah, okay, that, that feeds into Yogi Bhajan's whole power thing, or his money and power and whatever, all that crap, right, and I frankly didn't know anything about all this sexual crap until after I left, and, and, you know, and I kind of was like, well, Okay, I didn't even know what to think about it necessarily. You know, my my husband Jim calls uh, Yogi Budget. He always calls him Yogi Budget. <laughs> did you end up reading Premka? Yes, I did. I did. And did read that? Premka. Did that? Um, what did that do to you when you? Read? Uh, I read it and I was just like, oh wow, okay. I I didn't. I I felt. I guess I felt a little bit separate from it you know because again it was kind of like this happened to this person who was so close to him and then I could see there was some other stuff going on and I just never I mean I was just like this little punk seek in a way you know I mean I was and and, you know part of me is like I tried so hard to be good and do all follow all the rules and everything and so so then it's a little bit like, okay, well, that's sad, but I, it, it didn't, it didn't hit me real hard. And I think, like I said, I'd had basically 30 plus years to really process so much of what I, the things that I had gone through. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I was asking because it's been so long, like you, and you left in a way that was, you know, in, in the words I would use is like bold, like you didn't leave, you stayed very much engaged and yeah, made people yeah. deal with you, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, kind of, in, yeah, in yeah. the 80s, that's a thing, you know, yeah. because, because there was an, a, an outward atmosphere, like you're saying, where somebody would come and give you a talk that says, yeah. why don't you be a good person and get your turban back on? And yeah, like, yeah. that was the norm. And exactly. So I, I'm, I'm pointing that out to say, to have this time, to have made those choices that you and your husband made, even that your children made, and to empower them to kind of be in a set of choice at a time when obviously the ethos of the community wasn't to empower our children to choose, right? As much as some children might've thought they were choosing to go to India, there wasn't, it was a better alternative than growing up in America with a turban on at some point. I had an interesting experience around that. I, when I turned 40, I decided that I needed to travel. So I went, I decided I'd go to France. I don't know why, but so I wrote to Pantone thing in car and asked them if they knew anybody. And at this point, you know, I don't have a turban or anything, but I, I said, 
is there somebody there? Is there an ashram there? Do you think I could stay there? And so, yeah, um, Guru Hanskar had a little, I mean, oh my God, it was the tiniest apartment. It made me so grateful, you know, for what we have here. So she invited me to, I stayed with her for like eight days and it was lovely. And it was, it was super interesting too, because during that time they were having a Satnam Musayan um, workshop one of the weekends I was there, which I didn't go to, but they invited me to come on the last day. And so it was, um, what's his name? Your, um, who was that big guy? Who kind of yeah, Gurudev Singh. Gurudev Singh. Yeah. I kind of thought he was Yogi Bhajan, but I maybe still does. I don't know. But anyway, it was yeah. super interesting. And I went, so I stayed with her, which was lovely. And then um, I, um, then on the last day of this workshop, we were invited to, to go and have dinner at this, uh, one of the French students' house. And uh, so it was, Gurudev was there and Guru Hans and whoever, some other seats and, other yoga students or whatever so at some point they and they're speaking french a lot but then they would move into english so i could understand um somebody said to me do i have children and i said yeah and and i explained yeah and i said something about oh my son had gone to school in india and so at this point your dave's son i think it was a son was in school in india and so we kind of started talking about that and i said you know what i realized i realized that the, the india school experience because so many of the parents were either had problems with each other, they didn't know how to deal with their kids, they didn't want to deal with their kids, the parents were breaking up, there was all, all these issues. It wasn't like most of these kids were coming from this really solid family home, at least to, to my way of thinking and how I was viewing you know, my experience of it. And I still remember you're doing something like, why not, or some one of the people, why not, you should have another child. Like I was so passionate about my kids and stuff. And I said, oh no, my husband has a vasectomy. And, and they all were like, what? They didn't understand what vasectomy was. And so one of the guys, he was playing in French and he's like sniffing, you know, and they're all like, because, oh. you know, you don't have vasectomies in France apparently. <laughs> anyway, so it was a really funny and interesting experience. But I, I got to know Gerhanskar and what a lovely person and her two sons. And I met her ex-husband and uh, he would come every week and make the, I mean, it was pretty sweet, pretty sweet. Time. And, and so, didn't you mention that you went back to work for the Golden Temple um, at yes. a later date? Did you want to yes. fill that yes, in? I, okay, so fast forward to like uh, 2006. So in, in at some point I became, it was probably in the late nineties, I became a human resource manager, which I love doing because I love working with humans and figuring all that stuff out and recruitment and all that. So anyway, I had done quite a few different jobs and part of my problem is I won't shut up. So people kept firing me or laying me off or whatever. And at some point I was, I was working for a department of corrections, um, which was uh, Oregon Department of Corrections, which was quite intense, and I was getting a lot of hate mail because I was in charge of recruitment and diversity, and I, you know, you say something about Gay Pride Month, and people are having a big old fucking heart attack, right? So anyway, I, it was, it was super challenging. My boss was harassing me, tried to work it out, so I left, but what had happened was before I gave notice, before I decided to firmly leave, I got this vision come to me of basically these beings and they were like jump off the cliff and we'll catch you 
And I was kind of like, okay. And so my husband and I have always had this agreement. Like if we try, 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 and we just, the work thing is not working that we can quit without another job and we'll just make it be okay. We'll pull in and make it be okay, right? Because we're both hard workers. So anyway, I, I'm like, okay, I'll jump off the cliff. So I go to, go to work, give notice, tell my staff, I had about 10 people working for me, go back into my office, the phone's ringing and it's someone calling me for an interview. So it was like the most perfect confirmation. Now that wasn't my job, but right after that, there was a job opening at Golden Temple for a recruitment person, which is one of my specialties. So I go down there, and of course I'm excited. It's like, this is my home, these are my people, right? And of course, you know, there were a lot of um, non-Sikhs who worked there. But yeah. the, head of, the head of HR was uh, uh, Sabir Singh. And uh, so anyway, I go there, I had an interview with him and this woman who worked with him, Beth, and uh, I ended up getting the job. Um, which was great. I mean, I loved it. I just loved being there. I threw myself into it. It was really great. But but I started noticing some weird shit going on. And so this was right before um, Kartar basically um, stripped the company. I mean, I don't know what all they did, but he and a couple other guys, and I don't know the full story of it, um, but I would I would witness this a lot of, I never experienced this before in any any organization, I've worked in a lot of different places. There was a lot of these closed door meetings, very secretive. And there were a couple times I would actually be in on a meeting because it would be like a group interview setting. And what I witnessed was Kartar was the king. And if you spoke up to him off with their heads, man, I watched these, all these very capable, and it was pretty much all men, white men, except for put on Paulson, um, all, they did not stand up to him. Or if they tentatively try to say something to him, he would just be like, you know, like this huge power thing. Mm. So anyway, here I'm, I'm there. And one of my, my, the guy I told you about who I went to the prom with, he was working there too. And he was a big wig and I, he may have been in on the whole thing. I, the guy uh, you went to prom with when you were 17 is working at the Golden Temple. He's been on. there all this time. All this time has basically helped to build the company. I see he's a, yes. he's a top guy in the yes. I see. Yeah. So, Interesting. So it, so it turns out they, well, I don't, I think Kartar was, I don't even know. I don't even know. And I kind of didn't want to be immersed in it, right? Are you talking about when the when they try to disband everything? Uh, yeah. what, I don't even know what year that was, but essentially for that us, was, that was probably uh, 2007. Yes, yeah, so around 2007, the people yeah. that were in charge of the companies that ran they, they um, all up, the companies. Yes, they sold up the cereal side, and then of course they had they had all Sunshine Oils and other stuff that had been folded into Gold Temple and everything. And they basically liquidated it for their own good. They were trying to take yeah, money from themselves. Not sure what it looked like. They um, so, but what had happened in the meantime is so here I had been out in the world, right? And I had all this world experience. Plus, I was a human resource person, and I was seeing all these weird kind of things. And um, so, like, I'm sitting there. We we were trying to hire a sales manager or whatever. So, so how we how this is how you do it. We have the interview. You can have a panel interview. So I, we did the interview, I walked the person out and I come back and Kartar's like, yes. 
And I said, well, aren't we gonna talk about it? Oh, well, what do you have to say? You know, it was just like so sublimely snotty and like, like, oh, who are you to have any, you know, kind of thing. Now, let me tell you. Meaning you're I, not a part of that decision. Like, what exactly. are you thinking that you're a part of that decision? Exactly. Okay. Now, what you need to know, the background here is that I do, I lived in Ashram with Kartar a million years ago in Eugene and in Salem. This is like my old, old friend, right? We got engaged about the same time. His sister was the one Rajbir Kar got the name, her beautiful name the same day as me, right? So we have all these connections. So my office happened to be kind of right across the hall from him. And he always, every time he saw me, oh, he's hugging me. We're all like happy to see each other and everything. Okay. So this event happens um, with the interview thing. And I thought, oh, I get it. I'm going to have to, I have to say something, right? But I gave it a week to make sure I wasn't pissed and all that kind of stuff. So I, I go to him, hey, can I talk to you? I tell you, yeah, sure. And I, and I use words, you know, like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, you know, I, I've gained a lot of experience out in the world, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to let you know how it made me feel. <laughs> Owning it. This. Yeah, yeah, you know, like this whole thing. And he's kind of like, oh, okay. But he didn't say sorry, but you know what happened? He would not look at me or talk to me for months months after that and then the next thing i know sup beer is telling me that they've eliminated my job no how yeah. soon after um probably four or five months something like that yeah yeah and poor sup beer i mean i adore that man he he one of the fun things that we would do we work pretty closely together is we would go to job fairs or when we have applicants and people always wanted to know well oh you're wearing a blue turban. What does that mean? People always want to know, you know, what color, what does that mean? And he'd always say, ask her. And he'd point to me. He'd always have me explain everything. And, <laughs> and like, you know, like one day he's wearing it. He had a navy blue curtain, everything on and a navy blue turban. And somebody's like, well, what does that mean? What, you know, and he's asked her. And I said, it matches his outfit, you know. <laughs> he got, he got but, real sarcasm in there, right? Oh, yeah. It was, it was <laughs> Pretty much, we'd laugh, you know. So, so one day, um, there was an applicant, and we were standing out in the hall where three of us were talking, and they were like asking, of course, the seat questions and stuff. He's like, Ask her, and I said, Well, I said, I'm kind of like a reform seat, and I said, Sup Beer is like an orthodox seat. And Sup Beer, I will love him till the day I die, the day I die for this. He leaned over and whispered in my ear, Enlightened. So he called me an enlightened which was about the sweetest, you know what I mean? Wow. Like, super sweet, super sweet. It's like, it told me that he got me, you know? Yeah, and it speaks to like a level of, like you're saying, a level of camaraderie that is acknowledged, kind of like this private moment of acknowledgement that oh. would have never been spoken in a public domain that one wouldn't really understand the gravity of that. Right, and he... He didn't know me really as a seat because, you know, he, I used to tease him and say, I probably changed your diapers at, at uh, Solstice, you know, at children's camp. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was, so that experience uh, at Golden Temple, and then the whole thing blew up. And at some point, somebody called me and said, do you want to testify? And I'm like, I just, I didn't want to be in the middle of it. Like, 
because it was it wasn't like it wrecked my life or anything. They let me stay there until I got another job. It wasn't like I believe like that second or something. Anyway, yeah. I just want to I want to thank you for for sharing for coming here and sharing. I think that you've painted um, a really interesting picture that really highlights some really important. Um, foundational kind of formulate formulas that we're still kind of seeing perpetuate um mm-hmm. in ways you know this the, the have and have nots kind of was something the hierarchy that you spoke the to the hierarchy of like who is allowed information how oh, things yes. run oh, from yes. an ashram level like the peons and the yes. important ones yes yes absolutely yeah just dumb stuff like we'd work all day at the restaurant and have to come home and do karma yoga you know I mean like whatever (laughs) (laughs) well I know you say that now but what was the was going through you at the time you did it are you just I mean I remember that I remember I had just gotten married you know I'm here I'm 18 and we were kind of we'd worked hard all day we were it was a nice day we're out on the lawn just playing around wrestling around and being silly and stuff and somebody's like you need to come in and do your chore or whatever it was. And you just wanted to like say, shut the fuck up, you know? I remember that kind of same energy and somebody could like basically be like such and such and such and such G. I know. <laughs> and G was like asshole. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was like the tone told you everything. <laughs> <laughs> well I, it was I could always still hear the whole like if I said well we don't have the money to do that over it was always like where's your prosperity consciousness <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so funny oh that's so funny um I'm busy making ten dollars a month no <laughs> you muted yourself somehow I don't know how there we go okay um uh, my kids do call me Machiji, though, which I love. Which, I, yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think there's just so many aspects of, of the of the life you join that are so yeah. beautiful and that you got a gleam. And that yeah. also in the height of when you started to feel like something was off for you, not yeah. on a large community scale for you, yeah. you yeah. listened. And I said yeah. that in your, in your bio, but you listened to this quiet voice inside yeah. Yeah. I think what we're hearing more and more is that so many of our parents' generation didn't listen. They yeah. didn't listen yeah. to their own innate instinct yeah. to check on their child or to bring their yeah. child back from guardianship yes. or or to just say no to their ashram head or to YB or whatever the realm of their yes was. Yeah. And yeah. that's helpful to hear because... Yeah. Yeah. I want to stress that like in this time, let's call it 86-ish, you're rebelling, but you're still in and around community that, that you loved and you raised, you know, you birthed your kids in and there were distinct, and I know this in my ashram, I grew up in Phoenix. And so I'm pointing it out for listeners is that this, there were distinct people that did love and accept a person if they had cut their hair and they still kept them welcome and you could feel those that would still love you anyway and then there were the ones that had the disdain with eyesight 
Oh yeah. And, you know, and there was a distinct difference and there were the people that would come and give the lecture like you spoke about and all of that existed. And yet there were also the people that unconditionally loved, you know, that still welcomed us. And even though that wasn't the permeating ethos, you're highlighting that you still made them face you. You know, I had my mascara on and in this case, you could tell who your friends are when you weren't wearing a turban. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, I want to give a little bit of a shout out to a couple wonderful people. Um, Suri Vaidkar. I just adore that woman. And we just recently were saying how happy we are that we're reconnected again. I, I love her. And I want to say the Sadasats were living in Eugene um, about the time when I left. And they were always the most loving. And it still kind of makes me sad to think about Sadasats. And, well, he's on another dimension. He's okay. Yeah, he, he transitioned several years ago. Yeah. But they're lovely, lovely humans. They're definitely, you're so right. And, and you know what? I'm so grateful for all of it because it got me on a path of a much quieter. I was thinking about, I listened to your, your interview with Tej and he was talking about the being still, which I could really relate to, you know? And then um, I listened to Pierre and I was getting a real kick out of him talking about his, uh, his mystic moments. And I would call them woo-woo moments because I'm kind of all about the woo-woo. Um, and, and really the whole, everything led me to where I am now. And I'm, I'm, Probably, I don't necessarily say that loud, but I'm, I'm pretty psychic and I'm also a medium. I mean, I, I talk to dead people, although they're like, we don't like to be called dead, but um, I have this gift, which, you know, if you believe that kind of stuff. Sure. Right? Sure. So anyway, like for instance, Meaning my- your path has helped you get in touch with gifts that you wouldn't have necessarily been able to embrace if you just Absolutely. had your kind of spaced out drug parents. Yes, person. yes. Um, and I also, I also want to point that out that, you know, even today in the last number of years, I've witnessed yoga students that are young and they join the ashram and they get so excited and they're kind of all on this path of giving all their energy away to, you know, and kind of watching this kind of same repeat. And it brought me back to my childhood, just kind of I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. These, yeah. one level, it's like, God, you know you're the longing to be connected to something that feels real right and I could kind of hear that in your your testimony as a child so here's this ashram life that on one level is really offering so much richness and on another level is is robbing robbing of of time and self and a sense of um there's just things that were incongruent the whole way but there was so much that was being nurtured you just kind of like rode into it without Absolutely. Absolutely. It was kind of funny. Once I got into silent meditation, I remember going back to Gurdwara or, or whatever, even Sadhana. And I mean, I love chanting. I love chanting. But three seconds of silence in between each It's like, shut up. Give me that silence. It's the worst. I've always been so frustrated when people didn't let us just bask. You just did like two and a half hours of long hard, and somebody wants to go right into like closing. I'm like, you better let me bask in this for a second. I totally get that. Totally. The reverberating sound current of silence. Yes. 
oh bless yeah 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 so, anyway, totally. so i'm i'm very yeah. grateful and i'm i've been sewing lots of hats <laughs> well um did your children have relationships in the in from the from their growing up or did were all the kids um, in india so they were just too young and or what they, they kind of don't really i mean they kind of do with my uncle and uh. my and my yeah, or or Das, or she lives with Susan now. Um, but but not any more than me. I mean, like Port Dudurutin, who went uh, that's Kartar's son, by the way, um, who went to India with my son at the same time. I saw him <clears throat> back in 2006, 2007 when I was back at Golden Temple. And he it was like he had been through a war. And, but I didn't know what I didn't know about the school at that point. I just thought, oh, oh, because I knew him. I was there when he was born, you know. Oh wow! So you and saw Qatar's cool. son after he had come back from India, and like <clears throat> you felt like you, you, what you saw in him looked like he had been at war. Yeah, I mean, he was so. It was he was so wounded, and so I don't even know how to describe it. Like he, almost like he wasn't there, and his. I mean, he still had that sweetness, but anyway, it was hard. Wow. wow. He actually, he and uh, my son lived together for a little while, even after India. So, mm -hmm. but. You know. Well, I just want to thank you for being here um, and, and sharing so your story. And, and I want to also invite those of you that are listening. I know there are many of you listening that know a lot of the details of the Salem, Salem Eugene uh, ashram business building years. And anybody who wants to jump in some of these conversations, I welcome you to uh, to join this one because there's a lot of uh, a lot of rich details that we can yeah. add to this conversation. Are you gonna play my song? We sure are. I was just going to ask you next. That was hard to decide. So please let us know why you chose this one for us. Okay. Okay. So it was very hard to decide. Part of me wanted to pick a chant because I love chanting unsung Wahiguru or something like that. But uh, and then I was like going to choose. I'm a hog for you by Clifton Chenier because that's my son, my song with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell us about the ones you didn't choose. Tell us about the one you did choose. Sorry, sorry. Um, so anyway, this is one when I when I would get, so I, I do what I call soul flow and I'll get messages um, or it's kind of like tuning into my higher self, you know, and so I'll just type or I can talk it or whatever. So I often would get this um James Brown, get up off of that thing. And it was just a reminder. Get up off of that thing. You know, like, don't you don't need to hang on to it. You don't need to just like don't worry so much, kind of thing. So Ooh. he is my go-to guy. All right. So for those of you that don't know, this is James Brown. Get up off of that thing. And here we go. Get up off of that thing and dance to do you better. Get up off of that thing and dance to do sing it now. Get up off of that thing and dance to do you better. Get up off of that thing and try to release that pressure. Get up off of that thing and shake to do you better. Get up off of that thing and shake to say it now. Get up off of that thing and shake to do you better. Get up off of that thing. All right. <laughs> this has been 
another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the Kundalini Yoga 3HO community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can stay connected with me at gurunishan.com and we'll talk to you soon. Ha <laughs> ha.